Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. The Here and Now began as a sounding board for my thoughts on navigating life, and it is only natural that I continue this theme here in the podcast space. Far from being a how-to, this episode and future episodes which will continue the theme aim only to present and discuss various ideas, methods and attitudes which others have shared as their ways of understanding and navigating life. The cliché goes, life is precious. Yet for most of us it is a struggle, and I'd be lying if there weren't times when I didn't wonder if it was all too hard. Indeed, tragically, I've known several friends who came to that exact conclusion. So, if we can agree that life is tough, then it makes sense to look for ways that we can make it a bit easier. I think it would be wrong to think that others are not suffering. Outward appearances, a social media presence, and the perceptions created may hide the fact that we are all battling our own insecurities and demons. Perhaps this is most true for those who appear to have everything under control. So to navigate through life successfully is to identify not the things that make us different, but the things that we have in common, our humanity. That is the target for many self-help books which attempt to focus our scattered thoughts on key ideas which ground us in the reality that we are all in this together. I'd like to start from a fairly light perspective and consider Mark Manson's recent bestseller, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Manson describes his book as follows. I believe that today we are facing a psychological epidemic, one in which people no longer realise it's okay for things to suck sometimes. The idea of not giving a fuck is a simple way of reorientating our expectations of life and choosing what is important and what is not. This book will turn your pain into a tool, your trauma into power, and your problems into slightly better problems. That is real progress. Think of it as a guide to suffering and how to do it better, more meaningfully, with more compassion and more humility. It is a book about moving lightly despite your heavy burdens, resting easier, with your greatest fears, laughing at your tears as you cry them. This book will not teach you how to gain or achieve, but rather how to lose and let go. It will teach you to take inventory of your life and scrub out all but the most important items. It will teach you to close your eyes and trust that you can fall backwards and still be okay. It will teach you to give fewer fucks, and it will teach you not to try. Manson is all about accepting that life is hard, but that's okay. He says, pain is an inextricable thread in the fabric of life, and to tear it out is not only impossible, but destructive. Attempting to tear it out unravels everything else with it. To try to avoid pain is to give too many fucks about pain. In contrast, if you're able not to give a fuck about pain, you become unstoppable. And this echoes one of the four noble truths of Buddhism. It may come as a surprise to you to learn that the happy smiling Buddha, the notion of peace and tranquility and burning incense we associate with a religion, is actually a lot about pain and suffering. The first noble truth states that suffering and dissatisfaction exist as a constant in life. In fact, it is like the default setting for all of us. We are constantly either too hot or too cold, hungry, full, tired, stressed, anxious. Really, we're just a bunch of miserable assholes just looking for someone to complain to about something. Manson says, accept the truth, deal with it, and focus instead on the things you can control. And there aren't many, but perhaps the most significant one which influences a lot of other things is our attitude. Now that may sound like a cliche, but if you begin to operationalize it, and that is to describe it in meaningful terms, then you can start to see what he means. So take this example. List three values to describe yourself. Analyze them, and let's see if you have any control. I'll choose a few here. 1. Conscientiousness. 
Yes, I can control how hard I work, how much I focus and how much attention I put into things. 2. Honesty. Yes, I can control whether I'm honest or not. 3. Popularity. No, I can't control what others think of me, or whether they like me or how popular I am. I should let this one go. Next, it's about accepting that life is hard, but that's actually one of the best bits about it. Through hard work comes reward, and eventually contentment. We don't fully appreciate that which we didn't bleed and sweat for. But if you want to sabotage your sense of life satisfaction, go ahead and compare yourself to others. There will always be someone better at everything than you, someone faster, fitter, more disciplined, smarter, wealthier, someone with a bigger house, you name it. Now those people may inspire us, but if you constantly compare yourself to others, you will always be disappointed. You have to set your own bar. No one knows what it's like to be you, what inner battles and challenges you face. Conquering a goal may be immense for you, but nothing to someone else. But does that take away from your achievement? Of course not. So stop comparing yourself to others. Compare instead yourself to who you were yesterday and decide who you want to be tomorrow and then make a plan to get there. There is an interesting phenomenon which you may know of as the midlife crisis. But that is just one aspect of a natural flow of life satisfaction that we all have to some degree. This flow is known as the life satisfaction U-curve and it was actually economists and social scientists who identified it. Picture a graph that has a curve that resembles, ironically, a smile. Running along the bottom on the x-axis is age, and up the side on the y-axis is happiness. When we are young, we are full of life, hope, optimism, our whole life is ahead of us. We have few responsibilities, our health is never going to be better, we have our whole life at our feet. If we answer a few questions about how happy we are, the results are generally right up there. Yet, as we get older, we finish our studies, and we may become established in a career, and climb the ladder. We may eventually get married and have children and do all of the things that are expected of adults. But eventually, we begin to realise that we didn't do a lot of the things we thought we would. Life just became a little too convenient. We stopped taking risks. Responsibilities meant we had to take the safer options and slowly give up on our dreams. In fact, our lives are actually quite stressful. We have employees to manage. We have a mortgage to pay. Matters of public interest and politics concern us. And we worry about the future for our children, climate change, all of that stuff. We wake up one day in midlife and realise that despite being comfortable, we're actually not satisfied and we're certainly not happy. And this is the midlife crisis. But as we age further, we see our children grow up and maybe we have grandchildren to dote on. We accept our lot in life and we appreciate how lucky we have been. Yes, we have suffered through ill health and tragedy. We may have lost friends, loved ones. We've made mistakes. We've lost money. But after all of that, we come to realise what is truly important in life. Relationships, family, honesty, the values that make us human. We realise there are certain things, and perhaps most things, that we can't do anything about. A lot of life just happens, but we know we can deal with it. As we get older still, our health declines, but we take the same questionnaire and reflect on our life and find we are content. We are happy after all, and so the happiness curve climbs again, and then we move on from the world. Well, that's the gist of it anyway. Jonathan Rauch, he's a writer who wrote a lengthy tome on the life satisfaction U-curve, and he titled it The Happiness Curve. It's not really a book for young people. It's written by someone in middle age for others who are struggling to come to terms with their own midlife crises. But it is helpful to learn that there is actually a path we are on emotionally, a certain momentum to how we feel about life, and that can be explained by some quite straightforward and pragmatic elements. Rauch says, First, midlife slump, he prefers not to call it a crisis, is completely normal and natural like teething or adolescence. It is a healthy, if sometimes painful, transition, and it serves a purpose by equipping you for a new stage of life. 
You may feel dissatisfied, but you don't need to feel too worried about being dissatisfied. Second, the post-midlife upturn is no mere transient change in mood. It is a change in our values and sources of satisfaction, a change in who we are. It often brings unexpected contentment that extends into old age, and yes, even into frailty and illness. Third, by extending our lifespans, modern medicine and public health have already added more than a decade to the upturn, and they will add more years in the future. We are in the process of adding perhaps two decades to the most satisfying and pro-social period of life. Some sociologists call this new stage of life encore adulthood. Whatever you call it, it is a gift the likes of which mankind has never known before. And here's another important point. Happiness is not about money. Back in the 70s, a US economist named Richard Easterlin identified that while in some countries having more money meant more happiness, as societal wealth grows, happiness doesn't. More money doesn't equate to more happiness. This is known as the Easterlin paradox, and it poses a question which has been largely ignored. Why build society on the growth of wealth when it doesn't actually contribute or benefit our life satisfaction and happiness? There are a number of other considerations, such as an increase in equality that comes with an overall increase in wealth, but we might unpack that in a future episode. For now, let's continue on the happiness curve. Now, set aside the notion that one day life will be better. This idea that we have that one day in the future, when I have more money and I'm in great shape, I've ticked off all the things on my bucket list, that I'll finally be happy. Then I can enjoy my later years, content in the knowledge that I've lived a great life. Now, you can, but it won't be because any of those things happen. Expectations are a great source of disappointment. When we temper our expectations, which tends to happen naturally in later life, we're happier. We accept rather than expect, and that is a good thing. We are pleasantly surprised rather than disappointed. The idea of rationalising how you feel with the knowledge that we all go through this, to some extent is what psychologists refer to as normalising. I like to think of it as just being. Just accept how you feel, know it is part of life, part of your journey, and that it won't always be like this. Acceptance is one path to contentment. We can also extend this to mindfulness, being in the here and now. It's kind of where the name for the blog in this podcast comes from, letting go of everything but this moment. It's not easy to do, but when we simply detach and focus on this moment, right now, it is very difficult to carry all of our baggage with us to that place. The present is no place for regret, as that is tied to the past, as is disappointment and myriad other negative emotions attached to the things we have no control over or can do nothing to change. Anxiety, worry, fear, these are all emotions attached to a future which hasn't happened yet. In fact, the more we dwell on those things, the more likely we are to conjure them into being through our own negative mindset. There is nothing to fear in the present moment, nothing to be anxious about. This moment right now is all there is. If anything, it is a neutral position, free of all of the emotions we may assign to that past and future. When we can learn to live in the moment, and I don't mean with reckless abandon, but to detach from the swirling mass of thoughts that consume our lives, and focus on the most simple things such as our breath, we can find a pathway to transcendence of emotions which seem to influence our perception of how happy and satisfied we really are. I think it was Mark Twain that said, I've been through some terrible things in my life, some of which actually happened. I'd like now to read a few excerpts from a little book that has been around for quite a while now. It's called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. It's by Richard Carlson. He's sold over 30 million copies, so I'm sure you've probably heard of it. Carlson was a psychologist turned author who specialised in helping people reduce stress and increase happiness in their lives. He wrote about 20 books, but this one is what he is most well known for. So the first one is number 12 from his book. It's called, Let Others Be Right Most of the Time. One of the most important questions you can ever ask yourself is, do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? 
many times the two are mutually exclusive. Being right, defending our positions, takes an enormous amount of mental energy and often alienates us from the people in our lives. Needing to be right or needing someone else to be wrong encourages others to become defensive and puts pressure on us to keep defending. Yet many of us spend a great deal of time and energy attempting to prove or point out that we are right and that others are wrong. Many people, consciously or unconsciously, believe that it's somehow their job to show others how their positions, statements and points of view are incorrect and that in so doing, the person they are correcting is somehow going to appreciate it or at least learn something. Wrong. Think about it. Have you ever ever... Have you ever been corrected by someone and said to the person who was trying to be right, thank you so much for showing me that I am wrong and you're right. Now I see it, boy you're great. Or has anyone you know ever thanked you or even agreed with you when you corrected them or made yourself right at their expense? Of course not. The truth is, all of us hate to be corrected. We all want our positions to be respected and understood by others. Being listened to and heard is one of the greatest desires of the human heart. And those who learn to listen are the most loved and respected. Those who are in the habit of correcting others are often resented and avoided. He makes a good point, and it's one I try to remind myself of often, as difficult as it may be. There reaches a point in life when you need to listen to other people and really listen. It's in those moments of your own silence that you can start to absorb what other people are saying and find out that it doesn't really matter who's right or wrong. Everybody will approach things from their own perspective. And oftentimes, when you let people reflect out loud, you begin to learn more about yourself as well. The next lesson is number 22 from the book. It's called Life Isn't an Emergency. In some ways, this strategy epitomizes the essential message of this book. Although most people believe otherwise, the truth is, life isn't an emergency. I've had hundreds of clients over the years who have all but neglected their families as well as their own dreams because of their propensity to believe that life is an emergency. They justify their neurotic behaviour by believing that if they don't work 80 hours a week, they won't get everything done. Sometimes I remind them that when they die, their in-basket won't be empty. Carlson continues, I've never met anyone, myself included, who hasn't turned little things into great big emergencies. We take our own goals so seriously that we forget to have fun along the way and we forget to cut ourselves some slack. We take simple preferences and turn them into conditions for our own happiness, or we beat ourselves up if we can't meet our self-created deadlines. The first step in becoming a more uh, peaceful person is to have the humility to admit that, in most cases, you're creating your own emergencies. Life will usually go on if things don't go according to plan. It's helpful to keep reminding yourself and repeating the sentence, life isn't an emergency. That's great advice. A friend of mine shared a Facebook meme recently, and it was a image by a gentleman by the name of Charles Bukowski, who was a German-American writer and poet, and it said, We are all going to die, all of us. What a circus. That alone should make us love each other. But it doesn't. We are terrorized and flattened by trivialities. We are eaten up by nothing. This really resonated with me, and it's pretty much a short version of Carlson's lesson number 22 that I just read. Don't sweat the small stuff. It really doesn't matter. This is perhaps not truer than for those who have been in combat, where they face life and death up close and personal as bullets whiz by. Andy McNabb, which is not his real name, became famous for his book Bravo 2-0 about an SAS mission in the first Gulf War, where the patrol he was commanding was compromised. He and others were eventually captured and subjected to harrowing torture techniques in the Abu Ghraib prison in Baghdad. In the closing passage of his book, McNabb writes, Our big joke in prison used to be, Well, at least they can't make us pregnant, and I've learned that nothing is ever as bad as it seems. Things that might have bothered me in the past are less likely to now. The car not working, red wine being spilt on our light-coloured carpet, the washing machine flooding, something valuable getting lost. I know my limitations better now, 
Yet I feel more positive and self-assured. I no longer take anything for granted. I appreciate simple, everyday things much more. Instead of going downtown in the car, I'll make an effort to walk through the park. Why is it that to appreciate what is truly important and what is not requires us to suffer through an ordeal where we face losing it all? Why do we not see the forest for the trees? Returning to Mark Manson's book, he says, In the 1950s, a Polish psychologist named Kazimierz Dabrowski studied World War II survivors and how they'd cope with traumatic experiences in the war. This was Poland, so things had been pretty gruesome. These people had experienced or witnessed mass starvation, bombings that turned cities to rubble, the Holocaust, the torture of prisoners of war, and the rape and or murder of family members, if not by the Nazis, then a few years later by the Soviets. As Dabrowski studied the survivors, he noticed something both surprising and amazing. A sizable percentage of them believed that the wartime experiences they'd suffered, although painful and indeed traumatic, had actually caused them to become better, more responsible, and yes, even happier people. Many described their lives before the war as if they'd been different people then, ungrateful for and unappreciative of their loved ones, lazy and consumed by petty problems, entitled to all that they'd been given. After the war, they felt more confident, more sure of themselves, more grateful and unfazed by life's trivialities and petty annoyances. Obviously, their experiences had been horrific, and these survivors weren't happy about having had to experience them. Many of them still suffered from the emotional scars the lashings of war had left on them, but some of them had managed to leverage those scars to transform themselves in positive and powerful ways. And they aren't alone in that reversal. For many of us, our proudest achievements come in the face of the greatest adversity. Our pain often makes us stronger, more resilient, more grounded. Many cancer survivors, for example, report feeling stronger and more grateful after winning their battle to survive. Many military personnel report a mental resilience gained from withstanding the dangerous environments of being in a war zone. Dabrowski argued that fear and anxiety and sadness are not necessarily always undesirable or unhelpful states of mind. Rather, they are often representative of the necessary pain of psychological growth. And to deny that pain is to deny our own potential. Just as one must suffer physical pain to build stronger bone and muscle, one must suffer emotional pain to develop greater emotional resilience, a stronger sense of self, increased compassion, and a generally happier life. We often expect too much. We make our happiness conditional upon things that we can't control, or things that are unlikely to go smoothly. When things do not seem to be going to plan, we lose heart and ask the wrong questions. We say, why me? And what we should be saying is, good, what can I learn from this? Retired US Navy SEAL Jocko Willink has become known for his good mantra, where he states that when something isn't going to plan, he just says, good, and finds the upside to the situation. Unexpected problems? Good, we have the opportunity to figure out a solution. Think about the last time you did well at something. Chances are you attributed your success to internal factors. You may have thought to yourself, I did well because I am smart, or I did well because I studied and was well prepared. These are two common explanations you might use to justify your performance. What happens when you don't succeed though? Social psychologists have found that in this situation, you are more likely to attribute your failure to external forces. You might say, I failed because the situation was different to what I was prepared for, or it was so hot that I couldn't concentrate. These are examples of excuses you might come up with to explain poor performance. Notice that both of these explanations lay the blame on outside forces rather than accepting personal responsibility. Psychologists refer to this phenomenon as the self-serving bias. So why are we more likely to attribute our success to our personal characteristics but blame outside variables for our failures? 
Researchers believe that blaming external factors for failures and disappointments helps protect self-esteem. It's a self-protection mechanism. Unfortunately, it's bullshit. We need to be honest. We need to be honest with ourselves and not fear failure. We shouldn't hinge our happiness on whether we win or lose at something. We should acknowledge that sometimes we will fail, and for a variety of reasons. We need to reframe those failures as opportunities to learn and get better. Each experience makes us a little wiser, if only we are willing to cut the bullshit and listen to what that experience really taught us. Another similar bias is the fundamental attribution error. This is when we see someone else fail at something, and we say that that didn't work out because they didn't work hard enough, or they aren't that good at it. We don't consider the external factors that we blame for our own failures, we blame the individual for their own demise. Another example that is perhaps more relatable is how we curse at others' behaviour without considering their circumstances. Now don't get me wrong, some people can be assholes, but are all people really assholes? And all of the time? Probably not. When you're, when you're in a queue and someone pushes ahead, or someone bumps into you, or cuts you off in traffic, when someone snaps at you, all of those times when you felt like some person was an asshole to you, how often do you stop and think about what might be happening in that person's life at that moment to make them behave that way? What other factors could be contributing to their behaviour? When it's you that has to push ahead because you're late, do you think the other people waiting think to themselves, this person is in a hurry, but they're probably a good person, so they must have some really good reasons for behaving this way? Or do they just think, that guy's an asshole? I think we all know the answer. Having a little compassion when you feel mistreated may make you a little bit nicer to others when you are having a bad day, and that could help to not only make you happier, but others as well. I'd like to finish this episode by tying some of these concepts together. When I was a kid, I used to worry a bit about all the things that could go wrong, mainly natural disasters and car accidents, things like that. But I figured that nothing you think about ever really happens, so if I thought about all the bad things that could happen, then I would be essentially stopping them from happening. Because if they did happen, that would mean I was psychic, and that's bullshit. Now, I didn't want to be surprised, so the best way I could think of to avoid that was to think of everything. That way, nothing would ever be a surprise, and therefore nothing bad would happen. Obviously, that is a naive way of thinking. Bad things do happen. They happen all the time, and there is value in worrying a little about some things. That's why we have insurance, after all. But I think that an underlying level of concern about what could go wrong is still with me. I'm not a risk-taker by nature. I just sit back from the edge, happy to watch others take the plunge. But I have found that when I do take risks, calculated risks, mind you, I've found out what I'm really capable of, and there is a sense of reward and satisfaction that comes with that. Stepping outside of your comfort zone is where a lot of joy lies. That is going to be different for everyone, as we all have different levels of tolerance of risk and opportunities for exposure to stressful situations. Like I mentioned, don't bother comparing yourself to others. Let them inspire you, not crush your spirit. Life is to be lived, so rather than be a Walter Mitty living vicariously through others, why not push yourself and take on challenges that scare you? Being fearful of something doesn't mean that it's unduly risky. It just means that it's outside of what your normal region of comfort is. Be uncomfortable, challenge yourself and find out what living in the moment is really about. Do something regularly that makes you uncomfortable and you will feel more alive and with that will come happiness and confidence. You may be surprised how many new doors open when you shed your fears and embrace being uncomfortable from time to time. There's plenty more to discuss on this topic, which is why the Navigating Life episodes will be more of a series within the podcast, which I'm going to revisit from time to time, where I'll share more thoughts and ideas on how to reconcile the challenges of life with our search for happiness and contentment. So just give me and my guests a bit more time and we'll get this life business figured out once and for all. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast to keep up to date with all of our latest episodes and be sure to give us a rating at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or at the email, email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.